Inside the Adventure, episode number 94, with Trask Bradbury. If you've ever been afraid to step outside your comfort zone, then you're in the right place. Inside the Adventure features incredible athletes and everyday people sharing their epic stories of pushing life to its limits. Get ready to be inspired, face your fears, and take action with your host, Marshall Mosier. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Inside the Adventure. Today, we're going to hear the story of Trask Bradbury, a longtime legend in both the recreational and industrial world of rope access. If you've ever been in a building and seen someone hanging off the side on a rope on a skyscraper or fixing a bridge or a wind turbine, there's a chance that that might be Trask. Whether on ice, rock, or dropping from wind turbines, Trask is equally at home pretty much anywhere in the vertical world. He's worked and rigged in a variety of industries, including including petroleum tanks, bridges, wind turbines, skyscrapers, paper mills, grain silos, and has also designed and managed rigging for several popular climbing movies. Born in Arizona, Trask moved to Colorado Springs at 20, where he's been climbing for over 20 years, turning his passion into a job every day. Trask owned his own rope access company, Gemini Rope Access Solutions, for six years and has since sold it to an engineering firm. Now based out of Denver, Trask is currently a co-owner and operator of Masterpoint Rope Access Solutions. In addition, he's also an EMT, holds both a Sprat Level 3 and OSHA 30 certification, and truly puts safety above all else. This is his story. So I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, and my twin brother and I basically got our uh, climbing start in our backyard because we were born and raised at the base of a mountain called Mummy Mountain. And every day after school, we would come home, throw the book bags down and just go play up in the mountains. Um, After that, I shortly moved to Missouri for a very brief period where everyone in my family is from. And then I had a good friend from college tell me to go out to Colorado. And so I went out to Colorado and never came back. And that's where my climbing started. Uh, I'm kind of worried that's going to happen to me too. If I, if I move out to Colorado, it's amazing out there. Oh yeah. Yep. Um, so yeah, I moved out to Colorado and a friend of mine, who had just moved out there for school, told me about trad climbing, AKA traditional climbing. And uh, I knew nothing about it. And we went out and he gave me a rack of cams and said, here's your pitch and go on up. And I went on up and it was great. And ever since then, I never looked back. And that was, uh, that was after college. How old were you at that point? Oh no, this was in college. This was 19, 20. Oh, okay. Awesome. Yeah. Yep. And I had, um, I had started climbing in Missouri. I met a guy who worked for the, um, BSNF railway and he had a rope and some gear and I had a couple of quick draws and some carabiners and we started climbing the, the limestone cliffs of Missouri. Uh, that's what got me into climbing. And then when I went out to Colorado and saw what the real potential was, that's when I really, really got hooked it's it's definitely a bit different colorado than missouri isn't it oh yeah it's huge it's huge (laughs) just just a little difference yeah but But, i uh, you know i was young and dumb and i just figured hey i i'll just go for it so it was good 
Yeah, absolutely. I used to climb anything I can get my hands on. Uh, I get the story of how I think my first real climbing experience was actually in a McDonald's play area where I, uh, I'd already climbed to the the slide and the ball pit and I climbed up the <laughs> Ronald McDonald statue because I'd never climbed that before and I fell off and busted my head open and had to go to the ER. But uh, I totally hear you on that. Anything that's climbable <laughs> <laughs> is uh, it's fair game for sure. And honest, when you first got cool. into it, I'm sorry. That, that I'm just saying that's more epic than any other accident I ever had in climbing. So that's oh, really? <laughs> well, you know, it actually, uh, ironically enough, thinking back on it, I'm pretty sure it taught me the most important lesson in climbing and mountaineering that it's always more important to get safely back down to the bottom than it is just to get yep. to the top. Yeah, that's so true. I, I learned that at an early age. But um, in terms of uh, when when you were pretty young, when you were first getting into climbing, um, was it a uh, one of your parents that that? Uh, introduced to you or how did you sort of take that, that first climb on, on your first rock wall? Uh, you know, it wasn't my parents. Uh, when I first started climbing, it was, we were born at the base of a mountain and it was there. My dad was a very outdoor enthusiast, but he didn't say, Hey kids go climb. We just saw it. It was a part of our backyard and we went and climbed. Um, I think when I got a little older and I, was a very big fan of just climbing over things, climbing on things and just physically doing things. I started to realize that there's a sport involved here. I didn't know what the sport was because back then there wasn't a lot of climbing gyms involved. And so you had to find an older person and a mentor and they took you out and sort of took you under their wing and taught you how things should be done. So for anyone who's just now getting into climbing and obviously gyms are such a big, a big part of climbing culture, what was it like back then? How was it, how was it different? Oh gosh. Um, it was really, really different. Um, I don't know how much I can exponentially say how different it was, but there wasn't, uh, a lot of internet. There wasn't a lot of videos. There wasn't a lot of climbing gyms. All there was, was an interest in climbing, finding out someone older and wiser than you that knew how to do it and taking an interest in you and going climbing with you. Um, and that's how you learn to climb. So my first outdoor, my, my first outdoor climb was a lead climb. Uh, it was a very easy five, five or five, six hand crack, but you know, the person that taught me how to climb said, hey, here are how the cams work and here's how you should clip the rope and this is what you do. And I did it. Um, so things have definitely changed. And how did you find that older, you know, wiser mentor type person to to uh, to teach you, you know, the ropes literally and, and how to get started with that? I, I didn't really find him on my own. It was just through conversations with other people that said, Hey, you know what? I know this person that might be interested in climbing with you. Um, I don't climb myself, but it sounds like you really want to get into it. And I know this person and let me link you guys up. And it was that simple. And I made a phone call and next thing you know, we were climbing outside. I mean, this was back when gyms weren't really, commonplace uh there was one gym in the city or the or the state and you guys just found people to go climbing with you and you went outside and you learned on easy stuff and then you graduated to hard stuff 
And how much of a, a difference for you did it make to to have that person to to show you? Do you think you would have gotten into it um, otherwise? Yeah. So I, as far as mentorship and finding the the right person to do that, I, I really believe firmly that it teaches you life skills versus technical skills. Um, I think when you get into climbing for the first time and you go to a gym, you're going to meet a lot of different uh, expertise, a lot of different uh, styles, but there's so much involved at the gym setting that's not involved in the outdoor setting. And when I first got into climbing, it was just a, a person that had 20, 30 years of climbing experience showing me all of their experience um, in a live setting. And so you don't have the comfort of the gym safety factor. And so everything you do, you pay very meticulous attention to. Yeah, that's that's so true. I actually um, uh, got into to gym climbing really early on, but really fell in love with rock climbing once I got to the outdoors and, and then hadn't been back to a gym uh, until pretty recently, actually. And I, it's, uh, it's sort of weird going back to a gym environment where everything is already set up for you. And that's, right. that's so true that the, uh, the outdoor environment teaches you a lot of those life lessons. Well, what do you think are some of the parallels between some of the life lessons you learned from... Um, all of the the safety aspects of rope maintenance and and everything you have to do in setting up your own routes and your own rigging um, that we're able to translate into other aspects of life. Well, I can certainly say that um, some of the parallels between work and climbing and other aspects of life are uh, s- procedural steps, um, taking each step one at a time and not getting ahead of yourself. Um. Cleanliness is godliness. This is definitely one of my mottos in life. And I teach this to all of my work employees. If you keep things simple, neat, and clean, I I think it makes the body and the mind much more uh, focused on what is exactly taking place. Um, I think simplicity and cleanliness equals safety. Yeah, that's such a good point. I completely agree. And it's those are such great lessons to learn at an early age as well, especially when you're 19 in college. Um, sometimes it it takes longer to learn those kinds of lessons uh, if you don't have such a direct type of experience to apply oh, that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what 100%. were you... Yeah, it's 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 such a uh, great avenue to be able to learn that. And as, uh, as a young kid um, in uh, in college, what were what was your mindset in terms of what you wanted to go into, what you were excited about, you know, academically, what you thought you wanted to uh, pursue, uh, and how that climbing experience uh, maybe impacted that. Yeah, so I, I thought for the life of me, I thought I wanted to go into like um, soil science or or biotechnology or some sort of um, biology. But when I got to school. I started quickly realizing that I really was into the outdoors. Um, I, I liked to learn all aspects of the outdoors and safety. And um, I was really focused on exploring. So when I started to meet these climbing mentors, then I started to realize, you know, maybe I'm not so interested in, at the moment, learning about 
science or this and that. And I just wanted to go into um, exploring the world and finding out what it had to offer. And what were some ways that you you found uh, a mechanism to to do that through? And did you end up um, pursuing one of those original things in college and then sort of switching afterwards? Or how did you make that transition into following those those passions? Yeah. So the funniest thing happened. I spent, you know, I was, uh, I'm 43 now. Um, and I spent the better part of 25 years, um, trying to be a climbing guide and a climbing professional. And in doing so, I also learned that I really enjoyed some sort of safety work. So I went down the climbing guide route and quickly discovered that there wasn't a lot of money going on, but I was very fortunate to be involved in the forefront of what is now known as the rope access industry in North America. And so a very good friend of mine uh, from the old days who was an ex-ice climbing sponsored, really great uh, ice climber and and rock climber as well, um, been in the books and the guidebooks, he started up a painting company and needed help painting a three-story church window. And so he called me up and we quickly collaborated on sitting on skateboard decks that we chopped up and drilled holes in and uh, sat on climbing ropes and painted these church windows. And quickly after that is when the, the light went on. I started to realize, wait a minute, there is an industry here there is a um, a niche here that is not being taken advantage of uh, when it comes to work at heights. Uh, when it comes to work at heights, the only alternative is crane or scaffolding. Now, cranes are big, tall, and expensive, and they need some place to park. Scaffolding is huge, expensive, and it takes a lot of time to set up. Rope access, which comes from the climbing world, is essentially we clip our ropes to what we would consider a good anchor, and we rappel down to the site of work, and we perform the work. And so it wasn't long after that project I did with my old climbing friend that I realized this is where the future lies. That's super amazing to hear that uh, a lot of tactics from the outdoor world, from the climbing world, were able to influence the construction world as an alternative to something expensive oh, like a crane and scaffolding. Yeah. That's So was that in the early days of when that was just being implemented or, or had it even been implemented at that point? And, and oh, what? what was uh, the access? Yeah, 100%. Ha, um, had it already been implemented. I think um, when it comes to the industrial term, uh, when it comes to the industrial term, I would say that rope access was implemented in Europe when it came to the offshore oil derricks that were built and all the offshore oil rigs. Um, so Europe definitely started the uh, rope access industry and not 
long after did the U.S. start to see, hey, we really need to create a governing body that can, like OSHA, that can uh, create a safe practice for work at heights hanging off of synthetic ropes. And um, I, having worked in every industry from petrochemical to pulp and paper to lime processing to bridges to dams to skyscrapers to windmills to you name it, it I, I see where this was going at the time. And so I think it's really just a matter of time for people to understand that this is a much safer way of accessing and performing work. Absolutely. It's it's almost surprising that it took as long as it did to to get there, but I, I guess the um uh, the blend between the construction and the climbing world, I suppose, would would take some time naturally. But uh, it's it's it sounds like it's such an easier solution than either cranes or scaffolding. Yeah, it sounds I mean, like a no brainer. It, it's it's it is actually still to this day quite surprising um, that there are industries out there that are saying to themselves, "Well, you know." Rope access, that sounds kind of uh, dicey. That sounds like a bunch of uh, kids playing on ropes. And, you know, they're used to the guy that's standing on an I-beam and his Y-lanyard is clipped at his foot and he falls. And if he does fall, he's going to fall 26 feet total, you know. So there, there, there are still industries out there that have not adopted rope access as a means of safe and professional work for their industry. That's fascinating. What well, it sounds like it was a really exciting time to do that first initial project for your friend and and the painting and realizing that this was sort of at the forefront of uh, a new industry of being able to apply those exciting tactics from the climbing and mountaineering world into this new industry. What were sort of some of the things that were going through your head and some of the next steps you took to, uh, to jump into that world and, and, um, and change it for the better? It was a very exciting time. I, I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, so there were quite a few companies that were already doing it and they were large scale. There were some companies doing it in the wind and some companies doing it in the petrochemical but outside of that, there was no one else doing it. And when I started out in this business, I had already come from a climbing background and a very good understanding of gravity and uh, forces. But I had also come from a rope access background. So I was able to put on a climbing hat and a rope access hat and, and, and change between those two. Um, which is super important. Uh, it's, um, it's amazing. I didn't realize it myself until recently getting into vertical caving, but starting in the climbing world, I was, um, uh, getting into the vertical caving world with climbing harnesses, not even knowing that there was a special caving harness just for all these things that you, you can sort of get away with, but it, it's so much better to have both of those, those backgrounds for sure. 100%. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing, that I'm seeing when you said, Hey, what's the, what's the scene look like now and what's changed in the scene. And, you know, this day in age, 
it's very specific what you need to have on and what needs to be stamped for equipment uh, for to get on a job site. Um, it's there's a lot of climbers out there that want to get into rope access and they think they can just wear their black diamond or their Arcteryx harness, but it's very different. It's one thing to go into the mountain. And this is the one thing that I learned the fastest in rope access. It's one thing to go into the mountains with your friends on your own accord and take on a climb and risk the chance at dying. But it's another thing to go to a job and have job people that want to go home to their families at night with all their fingers and their toes and and the same way they came into the job. So the biggest difference between climbing and rope access is group community and safety, right? And not that safety is not involved in climbing. We all go out, we all climb, we all go and push the limits. But when you go to work in rope access, it's not about you anymore. It's about the team. It's about the gang. That's so true. And and the the margin for error has to be uh, almost you know negligible and nothing versus uh, you know Good everyone hit. has their own risks tolerance in the outdoor environment for sure. Yeah, it has to be. It has to be zero. Exactly. It has to be zero. What was the first few experiences that you had in terms of getting into that industry? Some of the first couple jobs, and how did you break into that? Um, you know, outside of helping out a friend in a really creative way, uh, how did you take that first step? So I guess the first step was uh, when I helped my friend Rich on his painting project on the church. We were hanging off dynamic ropes, which we nor- we normally work off static. Um, and for anyone who's not a climber, uh, what's the difference between the two? So dynamic ropes for climbers are ropes that are meant to elongate during a large force. So if you fall, um, it's like bungee. So um, when the last piece of equipment catches the rope, there's going to be a soft landing. Now, static ropes, when it comes to work, um, they do not elongate a lot at all. Um, In fact, it's very minimal. And that is so that when you move, you're moving with exact precision. Um, so, So that's the biggest difference between dynamic and static. Awesome. Yeah, it, it makes, uh, always makes good. Um, uh, it's always great to be able to explain kind of the difference in case someone doesn't know. But, um, when, when you were, so doing that first project, you were with dynamic ropes and, and, um, Oh yeah. What was, sorry about that. What happened from there? Yeah. No worries. Yeah. So, um, working with rich on those, uh, first couple of jobs, it was all done off climbing ropes and, you know, we hacked off the ends of our skateboard decks and, uh, hooked up some webbing to those and sat in them and and did our work. Uh, nowadays, it's all done off of uh, static rope and in a full body harness on a descent device, which is basically like a um, a grigri on steroids, um, which has a, a couple of panic features so that if the operator squeezes too hard or forces it too hard, then it will stop. Um, 
So yeah, there's there's a lot of differences between the old days and the new days. That's really interesting. And in terms of some of the recreational equipment, even the the new day, you know, the current day recreational equipment, like a rappel rack, um, what's the reasoning for having um, something like that Grigory on steroids you were talking about versus the the traditional rappel rack? Okay. Yeah, no, no, that's a really good question, actually. Um, so the rappel rack, uh, if you want to talk climbing, it could be like an ATC or a reverso or something. But essentially, when you're climbing rocks and mountains and ice, when you want to go off something, you need your hand on the brake strand uh, to descend, and your squeeze on the rope determines the speed at which you descend. And with the descent devices in rope access, if you squeeze too hard or pull too fast, the device will actually stop you from descending. So there is a much more um, highly specific distance in the handlebar that keeps you from going too fast or too slow and falling to your death. Interesting. So really from a safety perspective, it, it makes it much, uh, much safer with, with less uh, need to always have that you know, hand on the rope. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So, I mean... With these devices, we never teach in a class that you ever take your hand off the brake hand. So even through a climbing ATC, you would still have your hand on the rope running through the device below it. And the same stands for the, the, the Petzl rig or the Petzl ID or the CMC clutch. The same stands for all of those devices. Um, what that does is, is if the hand that's on the brake or the or the the uh, throttle device, the handlebar, if it flexures, then it will catch. That's really interesting. Is is that equipment? Do you see that equipment starting to be used at all in the recreational space because it is so much uh, safer and easier to use? And what's the reason why uh, rappel racks are, are still um, utilized, even though they're not quite as safe? Well, I guess, um, I've seen it quite a bit now. I think, um, Petzl has a new pets, uh, uh, a new Grigri that has a panic feature. It's called the panic feature. And that is that if you go too far to the open side, then it will break. And then I, I do see a lot of climbing gyms starting to, um, ban ATCs or any other type of passive uh, belay devices. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, I've started to see that as well, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's it's always really interesting to see the progression of gear, uh, which, to go back to what you were saying before, was, was probably very different back then. And when you were first getting started on that on that first um, that first job, what did the equipment and the setup look like like back then? And and how did you um, kind of navigate that learning process? Oh my God, if I had a nickel for the story that I love to tell the new guys. So safety is huge in our industry. And um, of course, I would never want to teach someone new an old way, but it's but it is good to talk about the old ways. And I remember when I did that first quote unquote rope access job, 
I was sitting on a skateboard deck that was tied to the rope that I was sitting on, on a Grigri, a Petzl Grigri. Um, and, and that's safe. That's totally safe. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but my backup device was a handled ascender attached to a daisy chain, which is static and attached to my same place that my Grigri was attached to. So there's, there was a lot of, um, concept there, but there was not a lot of thought there. And through the growth of rope access and the redundancy that it stood for, um, there was a lot, there was a lot that, that happened between now and then. What was it like to sort of, to see that progression? And do you have any, um, like you mentioned the the story you, you tell people when they first got started, um, what are some of those stories and in, in terms of the firsthand experiences of, uh, kind of witnessing firsthand that progression in, in the space? Um, to be honest, I was very inviting to tell the stories of what we used to do. And I think it was because it was nostalgic, but, um, it was also very eye-opening. Uh, I, as a, as as a 2020 teacher and company owner and company that does rope access, we don't do anything without redundancy. And back in the day, when I tell people that we hung off of a dynamic rope and, um, you know, clipped our backup device to a handle descender, which had teeth on it, they, they freak out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's everyone progresses, you know, in in sport and and when the sport progresses itself, of course, everyone learns things, but it's, um, uh, it's, it's interesting. And I think it's really important to point out that every, every expert gets there through, uh, through a learning process, through a stage of, of different, um, different experiences. And I think sometimes people who aren't in the vertical world will look at all the gear and all the you know, knowledge that people who are in the vertical world have. And yeah. sometimes that might be intimidating to say, oh, I, I can't learn all that. That's so much. But I think yeah. it, um, it is important to point out that it's, it's a learning process for everyone. And it's, um, you know, it's so much better now uh, than, than it was before. And that's the, that's the case for every single sport, um, that exists. But, um, no matter how complicated something is, uh, it's, it's always learnable for sure. And for people who are excited to get into the sport that might be intimidated to say, Oh, there's so many things involved. I don't know if I could do that. Uh, what's some of your advice for people who want to, um, who want to take the step, want to take the leap and, and try it out and, and learn for themselves? That's a good question. Um, I think my biggest advice for anyone moving forward into this industry would be to, be willing to diversify. Um, what I tell a lot of people is that rope access is the bus that we take to get to work, right? So if I got paid to just hang off ropes and do stupid human monkey trips, I that would be great. Um, but to go out and receive education on, you know, uh, non-destructive testing or engineering or, uh, inspection work or, or something. I think my biggest advice would be to, 
to, to diversify. Um, and then if you have the physical skills, right? Like the, the easy stuff for a lot of people like us in life are the physical skills. And the harder things are the soft skills and the, and the, um, education skills for, for people in the athletic industry. Um, but if you can excel at the athletic stuff and really push yourself towards the, um, engineering and the, uh, education stuff, then in this industry, you will definitely make it because like I said, Rope access is the bus that we take to get to work. It's not the work. That's a really great point. And, and do you think some people confuse that sometimes since the, oh, they, you know, the very what, visual piece is the, the rope yeah, access? Yeah, 100%. There, there are people out there that, um, you know, they see we live in an interesting world. You know, it's 2020, it's Instagram, it's Facebook, it's this and that. And, people see a picture and they're like, I want to do that. And the picture might look great, but it doesn't tell that person that 15 years of effort took to get there or, you know, whatever the, whatever the job was, they were there because of the job, not because they could suspend themselves from a rope. Right. Um, there's there's a lot more to rope access than just, you know, hanging from a rope and moving left to right, front to back. There is soft skills, hard skills, people skills, um, business skills. I, I, I can't even begin to describe how much more is involved. Oh, yeah, for sure. And in terms of your own personal journey, what were some of the, the lessons you learned along the way? through that experience and and then eventually how did those lessons empower you to start your own company in the space and and take that leap um into entrepreneurship that's a good question i think um when i was younger and single and willing to spend basically 10 months on the road living in hotels and just traveling working for any company that i could um i think that for me, it was um, learning that there was more out there than just the work. And having worked for companies that treated me poorly or didn't pay me on time, or when I showed up in this town and my hotel wasn't paid for, so I had to give them my credit card and I was expecting the hotel to be paid for. I, I over the years of getting totally shortchanged as an employee did i realize what was missing from companies that needed to take place in an industry that was still evolving does that make sense yeah yeah definitely it's i mean it's amazing that they they were uh uh that that was a common thing you you would think that that would be pretty standard but still common it's still coming wow. to this day. There's companies out there that, you know, they they promise themselves to a client and then they hire a bunch of, uh, you know, self-employed kids, right? Um, and they're not really self-employed because they don't carry a insurance policy. They don't carry general liability. And, you know, the difference between 
today and the old days is that everybody wants to be self-employed, but nobody wants to spend $25,000 a year on general liability and workers' compensation insurance. Yeah, insurance can get expensive really fast. It's very expensive, especially if you work in the wind, the bridge, the petrochemical, the you name it, the industry. It's easy to get insurance if I say, hey, I work in washing windows for buildings that are 15 stories and less. That that insurance company can say, okay, that's great. But if if I say to an insurance company, oh, well, I one day I'm going to be working on a wind turbine, next day I'm going to work on a bridge, next day I'm going to be working on a dam, they start to say, well, your insurance is going to cost X, Y, and Z, and next thing you know it, it's very expensive. That's really interesting. Is there is there some kind of statistical there is. Uh, trend that show that's that that that's more dangerous to change up your environment, or are they just not really understanding? They they just don't understand. So the insurance yeah. companies to this day, it's 2020 and it's February 14th. To this day, the insurance companies don't have a code to classify rope access. Wow, that is fascinating. And yeah. I am not a fan of insurance companies, so I'm no. not surprised. Yeah, I'm sure you're not. <laughs> but but we we were classified as a mobile crane unit last year. Wow. They finally classified us as an inspection company. And I mean, we do everything. We do everything from inspection to repair to retrofit to painting to you name it. But there really isn't a code in the United States of America for rope access yet. That is exactly how new rope access is to the USA. That's fascinating. It's it's so apparent that it's just a lack of understanding in what actually goes 100%. into it. There, there are industries out there that are 100% more unsafe than we are, and yet we are more expensive. It's it's fascinating. I tell this all the time whenever we take a group uh, repelling for the first time who's never been that that the perception of risk is so much higher than the actual risk when everything is set up uh, exactly. to the standards of, exactly. of how it actually should be. But it's the it's the difference between doing something that uh, feels risky because it's new and different and, and not well understood versus doing something that's way more dangerous. Like, for instance, the drive there. But we do that every day. So it doesn't yep. feel different or new. And it's fascinating how human psychology uh, associates new with uh, dangerous. Yep. And that's that's super interesting. Yeah. Well, no, in terms of, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and in terms of some of those uh, just really shocking things that that companies used to do, and and some that still do, were those some of the things that inspired you to say, "I'm, I'm going to do this differently. I want to go out and start my own company and change some of this." And what were the things that inspired you to uh, to to make that happen? Uh, so I, th- I I would say that first and foremost, the biggest thing that inspired me was the client relationship. Um, I felt like some of the companies that I used to work for just wanted their paycheck. Um, and I was all about reputation. I still am. That's, that's my, that's my bread and butter. It doesn't take, you know, back in 1995, you know, 
you could probably do something in North America and it would not be heard of in um, Europe for five or six years. Today, in 2020, if you did something in North America that was unsafe or wrong or just downright not cool, it was in five minutes going to go across the drink. Oh, yeah, for and sure. So, so for me, the biggest thing that I learned from the, the past experiences and the people I've worked for and the companies I've worked for was, hey, we're going to make things always right. Communication is going to be always clear up front. And we're going to make things the way they should be. That's it. Plain and simple. Yeah, that's so true. How much, um, uh, just how much that really matters. Uh, of course, it's always mattered, but today more than ever in in the world of of exponentially increasing technology that we live in and how fast communication happens. I think a great example that maybe a lot of listeners have have heard of. It has nothing to do with the rope access space, but there was that one hand gliding video that went viral of the guy that was not clipped in right. And oh, uh, I had to that. hold on. Did you see that? Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. I so, I, you know, I, I, I don't know anything about that hang gliding outfitter, but uh, for all I know, they, they could have had a 100% safety record. But that one incident um, yeah. captured on social media uh, goes viral. And um, that's that's really all it takes. So I, I will definitely speak on on what you just said, Marshall. And that is that every day I wake up in the morning as a business owner and as a safety supervisor, and as a person that wants to make things safe, every day I wake up, I think this is the day that something is going to go wrong. I can be driving to a job site and think this is the job site that I'm driving to that something goes wrong. And it is that idea, that thought, and that vision that makes me more vigilant than the previous day. Complacency. That's a really interesting mindset. Complacency is the the mother of all. Like you just said about that uh, hang gliding company, everything could have been perfect, a hundred percent, and then there's that one day. And I have dreams, I have nightmares, and I drive to a job in the morning, and I'm saying, "Holy cow, this could be the day." But it's that thought process, and it's that fear that I say to my guys during our everyday safety meeting. Hey, let's do it four times today instead of three. Let's go over the safety four times instead of three. That's such a great mindset to have. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it can be tough for people with an entrepreneurial mindset, um, who are very optimistic of saying, I'm going to go out, I'm going to start a new company, uh, make something better than it was before. And I, I think I, tend to fall into that category for sure of being a bit too much of an optimist. Um, but you're absolutely right with, with there's, the right mindset. It, you can definitely help prevent things like that. And how do you, um, how do you no balance the optimism? I was yeah. just going to say, there's no such thing as the, is too much optimism. There is no such thing. I don't know how that's even a, a, a word or a phrase or a concept. Too much optimism is just the desire to not be bad. Okay. And right. I said this earlier when I said, if you do something wrong in the rope access world, 
let alone any other industry, it's going to be carried across the world in in a viral second, in a viral second. So every day that we go to a job site or we're on our way to the job site or we're about to make a very serious move that changed from our typical work, you know, so because our work doesn't always stay the same. Sometimes we have to turn left. Sometimes we have to turn right. But when we do that and we say we're going to turn, we all stop and we say, what are we doing? Let's talk about this. What are the consequences of this? And it's the fear of bad consequences that keeps you sharp. Fear is your friend. It's not absolutely fear is your friend. And when you want everybody, wives, children, fathers to, to spend time at home together, it's your job to make sure they get home safe. That is it. That's so true. And I think it's fascinating when, when someone's learning a new sport, um, it's, it's not the, the, it's usually not the, the very early days when accidents happen. It's when you're more complacent. Um, that, 100%. Uh, when, yeah. When those That's things some, happen, but some it's of my biggest idols went that way. Really? Yeah. And I've, I've definitely experienced that myself as well. We, um, uh, we've had, a few guests, uh, one fighter pilot in particular that's been on the show who uh, talked about that that phenomenon. But I think it happens in, in every industry where there's the um, a sort of intermediate syndrome of of feeling like you've got this, you know this, and that complacency can sometimes uh, slip in where you don't necessarily have the expert amount of hours and experience and uh, hard situations you push through, but you've done enough to really feel comfortable, and that's really when the most dangerous dangerous time yeah, period that- happens. Yeah, that scares me the most. Um, I've been on jobs where it, it it sort of reached the point where they looked to us to at, uh, at, give us our opinion on something or that was outside of our scope, right? Like if you understand what I'm saying, and there is not a seri- there's not a moment in time where if I feel that it's outside of our scope, I am easily going to pass the torch to the person that that is in their scope. I know what we are capable of. I know what I'm capable of. I know what my clients are capable of. My personnel is capable of. If it's outside of that, I will be the first to say, nope, we do not do that. I will not say, yes, we can do that. Let me just watch a YouTube video. Exactly. And, you know, it's really interesting uh, with with the rope access industry and, you know, so many other outdoor adventure or outdoor recreation or anything like that that has a lot of potential risk to it. um, That's such a good mindset to have. But, you know, it's fascinating how many other jobs out there that might not have quite as dire risks when things go wrong uh, just say, yeah, and then figure it out along the way. Yeah. No, Um, I know. And ultimately find themselves in bad, bad places. Yeah, I think there's a time and a place for everything. I think, um, you know, I think the risk factor is variable. You know, I think if the risk is death, then you don't take it. I think if the risk is, oh, well, we might get a little mud on our face, then we might take it. But, you know, there's there's a level. Of course. Yeah. And with 
with balancing that mindset, I think that that is a, a brilliant way to approach every day of saying this this could be the day uh, when something happens with the job site, and and using that mindset to make sure that today was better than yesterday in terms of safety. Does that come with with added stress in terms of you saying that you know it sometimes keeps you up at night? Something you really really worry about. Um, does that added stress? Um, uh, create any negative outcomes or any negative effects, and how do you how do you deal with that and manage that um, to have the benefit of that mindset, keeping everyone safe, but also not the um, too many adverse effects from it. You know, I think to properly answer that question, I would have to say that sometimes on the upper scale of stress, I think that's when it helps to have partners and peers coordinate with you and you share that stress and you share those ideas or those thoughts or those dreams. And when you touch base with your, with your colleagues and your partners and your peers, I think that when they share those, um, when you share those feelings with them or those stresses or those concerns and they say, Oh, well, I thought about that. And I think, you know, we got this, we got this here, we got this there that's taken care of. You know, those, those are the times that those undesired stresses come into play. You know, I think everybody comes together equal and, um, you know, there's times where those stresses are warranted and there's times where those stresses are unwarranted. And it's when your peers and your colleagues can, can kind of bring you down from that, that place. If that answers your question, you know, um, yeah, definitely. I think there's been probably a thousand times, and that's not a joke, a thousand, if not more in my career where I've had concerns due to dreams or, or or thoughts and my colleagues have brought those concerns down to a manageable place where we mitigated whatever we could mitigate regarding hazards and we did it and the job was done and we walked away and I'm like oh yeah all that was for nothing you know so there i i you just have to uh share all those things with everyone you're involved with including the people that are doing the work, not just your, you know, not just the ownership or the call or the peers, but everybody, everybody. Absolutely. Well, yeah, teamwork is, is such an important factor in, oh, in uh, a lot of, a lot of spaces for sure. In, in terms of the, the rope access part of the job being like the bus that is taking you to work, the metaphor you use, which I think is, is really interesting. Um, obviously that, that, that bus, that vehicle to get to work isn't, uh, the only part of the job, but it is still a really important part. And just like any vehicle, you want to make sure that vehicle is extremely uh, capable to get you to where you need to be and do the things you need to do. So how do you, what standards do you use to find the right gear and the right ropes uh, to get you to where you want to go? And how did you learn all the factors that, that go into that with, you know, a lot of people think, well, rope is a rope and maybe don't even know the difference between a static and dynamic rope. But even with knowing the difference of a static and a dynamic rope, what are some of the factors that go into making sure you have the very best um, company that makes the right kind of rope and all the things you had to learn uh, along the way to uh, really know everything you need to know for that? 
That's a very good question. I appreciate that one. Um, it's just like climbing. You know, when you first get into it, you you think to yourself, oh, well, um, we've got a rope and it's stretchy and um, we've got some quick draws and some camelots and this and that. Um, when you get into rope access, you quickly learn very fast that it, standards are built by OSHA and OSHA looks to other companies like ANSI and NFPA. Um, and you quickly learn that this equipment has to meet certain uh, physical test standards. And so when you do get into it, you just start learning, okay, well, what companies do? Uh, and I quickly learned that when it comes to hanging on ropes, um, I want a rope that's going to be strong and last a long time and not stretch very much. And so we hooked up with Marlowe Ropes and Marlowe Ropes was a company that was started in the early 1950s uh, in the UK. And since then, they've just been getting stronger and stronger in the in the space field and in the military field and in the rope access field. So um, there's a lot of standards out there that that take place. Yeah, and I, I'm just really in the beginning of learning a lot about that myself. But one of the things I've been really interested with in terms of Marlowe, one of their uh, more recent ropes, is the the sheath on the outside of the rope uh, in terms of that Kevlar sheath being super, super strong and durable. And for anyone who doesn't yeah. know necessarily how ropes work, uh, you have the core of the rope, um, which is the, the strength holding part, but then you have the part on the outside, the sheath that protects that core. Um, which when you're, um, when you're climbing, especially outdoor climbing over rocks and the rope rubs on rocks, it can, um, uh, damage the sheath, but the sheath is protecting the core. Um, how much new innovation is going on and what are some of the things that especially Marlowe is doing, uh, to, um, to drive that, uh, that innovation forward in terms of rope access? Yeah, no, that's really cool stuff. And when you said, uh, climbing and sharp rocks, that's the first thing I thought of back before I got into rope access. Uh, uh, obviously I was a climber and in the days of El Capitan and the rest of the big rock world, all I could think about was as I'm pumping up this rope and like, you know, moving it up and down, up and down over something, is that something sharp? And is that something going to sever my rope and I'm just going to plummet? I mean, it's, it's funny because as a rope tech, I, I don't know how many climbers out there actually realize how dangerous it is when they have a fixed rope hanging over something sharp. And Marlowe Ropes has a really cool rope by um, uh, by which that they have it sheathed in Kevlar, which is a extremely durable, sharp abrasive with heat resistant fabric that protects the rope from that. So the Kev, we do a lot of rope work in um, ship containers where we have to fish our ropes through these little holes with very, very long poles. And we don't know what those holes um, are really about. We don't know if they're sharp or bull-nosed or dull or what. Um, and so the only way to get the ropes through there and feel comfortable is with that Kevlar Protect 500. And it's, it's amazing uh, how much warm and fuzzy we feel when we do that. 
Oh yeah, no, for, for sure. I, especially, um, in the getting into the, the vertical caving world, when you're ascending out of, um, out of a pit where your anchor system isn't hanging from a ceiling above. So it's not rubbing on something. If it's right. going over the edge of a rock, there's been a, a ton of times when I've been worried about that same thing. And uh, I just got a chance to test the, uh, ProTech 500 as well. I was super impressed. It's been, it's been incredible. I'm psyched. Um, That's good. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Have you seen a lot of changes in the rope world um, that are really driving that innovation forward kind of like that? And what are some of your thoughts on how that's progressing in the future? Yeah, I've seen. um, So I guess the biggest thing I've seen uh, that really hits home to this whole uh, sheath versus the core is the bonding of the sheath to the core so that uh, if the sheath were to get severed, um, it wouldn't be a full drop to your death because you wouldn't be sliding down the core on the sheath, whatever you're connected to on the sheath or on the rope. But, you know, in, in essence, you're connected to the sheath. Um, so the bonding the core to the sheath, I would say, is the biggest uh, game changer that I've seen. Um, apart from making the sheaths out of Technora, um and, and dyneema and other materials i think that is that's huge yeah that's really fascinating it's super interesting to see all the changes in that space i think a lot of people uh even a lot of climbers will like like you said think oh well i've got a rope it's stretchy um and it it works <laughs> but there's yeah. a lot more to it than that and the sad thing is is the first thing i think of is stretchy means bounce and you've got a guy that's what 600 feet below the mammoth ledges and he's jugging up lines, getting ready to go to his next uh, launch. And he's pumping up and down, up and down, up and down. And the rope that he's pumping up and down on is finally making a turn over something, right? It's making a turn over a crystal on a sloped ledge or a couple of crystals on a sharper ledge. But nonetheless, it's, it's, sawing its way to ultimate death (laughs) it's just it blows my mind yeah yeah it's it's fascinating um how much i think the uh vertical um the vertical access and rope access world can teach the climbing world for sure as well super interesting in terms of some of the things that um that you would recommend in terms of some advice if, if you could go back and and tell yourself when you were first getting into the vertical access world of switching making that shift from rock climbing into rope access and give yourself kind of one piece of advice uh whether it's a technical piece of advice or more of a kind of life lessons piece of advice what do you think that advice would be that's a really good question marshall um I would say the biggest piece of advice would be not to hurry. And I say that thinking right now, as we have a lot of work from our company, uh, we got guys calling and wanting this and wanting work here and there, but not to hurry, not to hurry experience. And we heard this, I mean, my generation heard this was you can't rush experience and everybody wants to go out and be their own 
contractor. Everybody wants to go out and be their own company. Um, but they don't want to put in the work that it takes to be very proficient at all the different industries. It's one thing to rig up ropes on a building in New Mexico and rappel straight down 300 feet for two years straight. I mean, that's easy. It's one thing to go to the top of a wind turbine and throw your ropes over the edge and go down to the tip of a blade. Um, but to go into all the different industries out there and to learn from other people and be open to learning to other people, that's another thing. That takes time, that takes energy, that takes effort, and it takes patience. And a lot of people out there can go out and get their Sprat Level 3, but their Sprat Level 3 is not worth anything if they don't have experience. And I guess my only advice would be to take the time to get the experience. That's such good advice. It's, you know, it might be a factor of sort of modern society of us wanting that instant gratification of, of doing something and, and, and now we're the expert and not necessarily embracing the journey and the experience to get there, but there's no replacement for that. And it's, um, I think having that lifetime learning mentality of, of not just loving the goal and the destination, but loving the journey uh, yeah. is, is the most important piece. That's so true. And I might, I'm, you know, I might be too far ahead that I don't even understand that, you know, maybe I, maybe I don't understand that everybody wants to get to the, the finish line right away. I mean, I, I don't understand that. So maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there is a way to, you know, fast track that, but I don't personally, I don't think there's a way to fast track experience. You can't, you just can't. It takes time. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, uh, it's it's part of the journey of of getting there. And in terms of of your journey of everything you've gone through and 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 done, what are some of the things you're looking forward to in the future of the rope access world and of um, all the things you love in the outdoor recreation environment in general? That is phenomenal question because the biggest thing I'm looking forward to is getting back to the recreational climbing. And actually stepping away from the rope access, um, I think I think one thing I've learned about myself after doing what I've done is that I love to teach. And it's because of all the different industries I've been in that I love to teach because there's so many tricks that you can teach from all the different industries, right? Like there's a wind industry blade technician trick or two. There's being on the side of a pipe in a paper mill that you can trick, you know, there's all these tricks, but they all come from different areas and you can't teach those in one spot. Um, so I want to get more into teaching and, but also more into personal climbing and back into what it is I used to do. It really is, is an awesome combination to be able to combine the two together. Does it, does working in the rope access industry, um, make it 
sometimes you're too busy to actually get into that in terms of the outdoor recreation side of things. I know a lot of people who will get into something uh, for work uh, maybe don't necessarily want to do it as much on the recreational side, but does it, um, well, what are some of the steps that you want to, that you want to take to, to get there? Yeah. So I think w- it's one thing to be a rope technician and to be what I would, what I always say and what I will say is to be a gun for hire, right? To just be a gun for hire. It's one thing for them to pick and choose their jobs, but maintain a climbing life, which is, in all honesty, the last person I want to hire because I have to work around their schedule. Um, but it's another thing to be a rope access company owner and want to get into back into climbing. Um, so it's a matter of just finding the right people to fill the shoes of what you used to do. Right. Yeah. Which is, is a hard, it's a hard thing, a harder thing than you, you would think in, in the business world. There were, um, uh, some other podcast guests that we had on recently, um, that have done a lot in the outdoor entrepreneurship space and are currently working on this sort of this idea of, own not run uh in the sense that they're trying to sort of step away to be able to have uh, a lot of the life experiences that maybe the the work uh day-to-day work environment can take you away from but it's it's hard yeah what are some of the biggest things that uh that go into that process of being able to um uh find someone to help replace some of the things that you're doing and and some of the checklists mentally that you have to have for that yeah, I, I mean, the biggest thing is finding the right caliber of person. Um, and the word caliber is probably an underspoken word, but, you know, it's it's one thing to have, let's say I had three technicians standing all side by side. And the one on the left was a level one, and the one in the middle was a level two, and the one on the right was a level three. Those three people have nothing to do with each other. They all just have this ticket. Um, it's, it's not the ticket that matters when it comes to work. It's the caliber of the person. And I've known level ones with more skills and qualifications than threes and vice versa. So to piggyback onto that conversation we were just having about finding the right people, it's, it's difficult. It's you have to look for soft skills and other skills other than the ticket that they hold to fill your shoes. So when a person starts a business up, he's not just starting a business up to make a million dollars. He's doing it because he has a passion. He or she is doing it to make a living because they have a passion. And if you can't find other people that you're willing to enroll and they enroll in it, you're never going to be able to step away. It's, it's, it's a very difficult thing. Um, people have to believe in what you believe, but also be willing to not go after what they want. Right. I've had plenty of people come into the company They learned all they wanted to learn, and I probably should have had them sign a non-disclosure agreement, but they went out and they started up their own company. 
Now, it's not working because they don't have the insurance policies in place and the all this and that to go after the big clients. But there's a lot there's a lot of people out there that basically say, I want to learn from you so I can go do my own thing. There's no more, like I said earlier, this vetting process. Yeah, that's so true. I think people sometimes um, underestimate how much that that really matters. But it's um, well, there's years of relationship building. There's exactly years and years of trust building with other clients and companies. And I, it just doesn't happen overnight. Like I can't just get my level three and say, hey, I'm ready for you all to hire me and be awesome. Like it, it just doesn't happen like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And in terms of the technical certifications, when you're saying that, you know, sometimes there's someone with less technical certifications that is really, you know, a better, uh, more qualified leader. What are some of those soft skill leadership traits that you really look for, uh, that you found are crucial and very, um, uh, correlated with the success you need in, in the industry? Yeah. So, you know, it could be anything from commercial buildings, you know, like a 40 story high rise that's owned by Cushman and Wakefield or managed by Cushman and Wakefield or some other company, or it could be a concrete processing plant. But when it comes to soft skills, um, not only do I expect a highly skilled technician to be able to solve the issues that they have. But I also expect those people to be able to interact with someone that's wearing a suit and tie uh, with the right words and listen and um, speak when spoken to and listen when needing to be listened to. It's, It's a multitude of soft skills that not a lot of folks have. And this is the one thing that I find the the hardest in rope access is rope access tends to bring a lot of climbers and climbers tend to bring all their baggage and they want to be, you know, bearded, hippie, climbing, vagabond, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I get it. I've been there. Um, But not every client that is a billion dollar client wants to deal with a um, person that's talking about pot and this and that i it's it's hard to explain and i know i'm rambling right now uh but marshall but there some of the soft skills are just knowing when to talk the way that you talk to the person that you're trying to talk to right it's it's about knowing who you're talking to and how you should talk to that person okay It's like being a chameleon. You go into a bar full of Harley Davidson bikers. That's how I'm going to be. You go into a restaurant full of white collared workers. That's how I'm going to be. You just have to know how to be and when to be it. And not a lot of people can do that. And that is a fact. And that is unfortunately a fact that I've learned. That's so true. It's it's so important to be able to adapt to the to the environment that you're in. Yeah, uh, but I mean, it is it is difficult. Yeah, very difficult. Well, in terms of the, I think the 
the analogy of you know rope access not necessarily being the job itself but the bus that is taking you there i think that's 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 a really good analogy that i haven't heard before but um what's it like to still be able to combine the your passion for the climbing in the vertical world with your profession of what you're doing professionally and how has that played a role in and just the enjoyment and the excitement and having that passion for what you're doing that uh, might not have been the case in a uh, you know, typical business type of environment oh totally yeah uh, the, the the coolest thing is um the older i get you know i've got two children now and um i'm not out of shape but the older I get, the less I get to climb. When I go to work and I'm tying knots and I'm dropping ropes and occasionally I'm rappelling, every once in a while I'm aid climbing, every once in a while I'm ascending a rope. Um, it It's just like being in the mountains, but it's in an industrial world. And it's, it's great. It kind of keeps my powder dry. So when I do get a chance to go back to climbing, it's really not difficult. Um, I certainly would like to be climbing harder than I am today but it it is a very good way to feed the jackal so to speak um you know every once in a while i miss climbing then i get on a job site and i'm doing um ups and downs and uh aid climbing to get things rigged up and all the gear's the same it's just a different environment it's actually uh it's really nice it's really nice so in order to to showcase all, all of these different really amazing elements of the rope access world, I think stories and podcasts like this do a really good job of painting that picture. But what are some exciting things in terms of your way of, of showcasing this world in the future that you're working on? So uh, we're really excited about working with Discovery Science and Big Coat Media out of Toronto on a uh, six-hour or six one-hour episodes on a uh, Discovery Science uh, documentary. So that's going to be c- kind of cool. That's amazing. So what will that what will that look like? So we're going to be um, filming six episodes. Uh, each is going to be one hour of uh, some of the upcoming jobs we have: some dams, some bridges, some uh, roller coasters, and other really exciting stuff. So we're really excited. That's amazing. Is there a launch date that's uh, available yet or any any information that anyone listening who wants to check it out can well, we, uh, can look into? We don't have a launch date yet. We start filming at the end of April. So we're going to be starting here in a couple of months and uh, we're going to be filming for probably four to five months. So I'm thinking probably winter of 2020. That's super exciting. Well, we'll have to um, do a, another shout out when the uh, show goes live so we can yeah, announce that and have everyone yeah, listen. Really that's excited. that's really exciting. We've got some cool stuff going on. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to see it. And thanks so much for taking some time to come on the show and and uh, just share all the expertise and knowledge and wisdom you gain from such a really interesting industry that, just like you were saying, is um, uh, not really all that well known yet, but but fascinating in terms of the way it's yeah. progressed and all the things that are uh, empowered, um, and possible because of it. So thank you, Marshall. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. 